Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. And uh, it's just really not in the nature of our church to kind of preach about fluff. We like to get into deep things and controversial things, and that's hard. Uh, so you can pray for me during this series. Uh, but I don't, I don't really think we have a choice as we wade forward into another election year. Um, you know, as we look out in the culture, really, the best description is that we are in a culture war. Uh, I've seen that term come back. That, that term was really popular in like the 90s, and that kind of faded away. But now everyone's like, yeah, we are in a culture war. And what's happened because of that culture war is people are always at battle. Uh, first of all, they're on battle at, on social media. You get on social media, and it is a battle on social media uh, about politics, about the viewpoints of laws, about things like that. And the challenge with that is it's always sound bites, right? It's sound bites. And so people are hearing little things, and you're getting little video clips of talking heads or one sentence that someone says. And there's not really a sense of integrity when it comes to ap- accurately representing your opponent's views as you critique their views. Because it's war, and anything's fair in war, right? And love, I guess. But the other thing is that, really, we see people out to destroy one another. We have lost a sense of each other's humanity. I don't have to see you as human if you think differently than me, because what you believe about politics and legislation and politicians is the problem in our country. And so we don't think that we have to treat other people as human beings. And here's the problem. We're being discipled by this cultural moment and how to talk about politics and our views on things. Like, we're not being discipled by the Bible or by the church on how to think about these things. We're being discipled by the culture. And so much of the church and much of the Christian community looks like we're at war. Looks like we're at war about these things. And so what that looks like in the church is Oftentimes you'll see in the church that it's not united around King Jesus, rather it's divided by things that are secondary. And so churches will flock to Jesus as long as there's a certain political view and everyone else who doesn't have that political view is a second-class citizen in the church. And so you end up with churches who are not united around King Jesus but divided around politics. And then secondly, what it does outside the church in our view or or how we're viewed as the church is um, I think we've lost some credibility. In, In other words, it seems that we have emphasized the message, come to my political camp rather than come to my king. Come to my side of the line rather than come to the cross and meet Jesus. Ed Stetzer, who's a missiologist, talks about the burning of the mission field. And what he means by that is Jesus said, look at the fields, they're harp for ribus. And harp, they're harp for ribus. Ripe for harvest. Thank you. But what Stetzer says is what's happened to the mission field is that it's like it's been scorched. So no one even gets what we're talking about anymore. What happens to the mission field when partisan evangelicals collectively turn their missionary platforms into ideological troll farms. What happens when those 
whom with we disagree become cultural enemies to vanquish rather than friends and neighbors to love. When an aberrant version of Jesus is formed in our own image and weaponized online as a parochial wrecking ball, and then what happens to the mission field when good news has nothing to do with the gospel? One of the challenges is that you and I live in a very polarized, partisan political system. And so even at the last election, it wasn't necessarily about who people wanted in office, but rather who they didn't want in office. (laughs) Never insert the candidate's name. That worked for both sides. Never so-and-so. And so it was about, from people's perspective, stopping what was wrong rather than voting for what was right. And that's the system that we live in. I went to a conference that year, and Carl Ellis Jr., who's an African-American theologian and cultural critic, an amazing man of faith, he said when he was being interviewed that he resented being given two options for candidate that he didn't agree with either of them. And yet that's the system that we live in. It's a partisan, polarized system, which leaves us with quite a choice as Christians as we move forward. Um, The Babylon Bee is a satirical Christian online newspaper, meaning that it is, uh, it pokes fun, and it pokes fun at everybody. It's probably going to step on your toes as I read this, but in November of 2018, they put out an article that said, and again, this is satire, Christians face clear choice between party that's a hypocritical mockery of their faith and one that's openly hostile to it. Now, in that article, it started off by saying, and I'm warning you, this will step on your toes, it said, Christians voting their conscience have quite a choice this election day with the two major political parties. With the Republicans, Christians have the option of declaring all their beliefs hollow by supporting a party that pays lip service to Christian while it is full of lies, greed, and a hostile pose towards foreigners and a cavalier attitude about war. Christians can especially show their hypocrisy by throwing yet more support behind a president who stands anathema to just about every moral standard they've previously claimed important while he makes only a marginal effort to show support of faith. Now, you might not agree with that. It's a satirical article, but it's poking fun at something. And the Babylon Bee, being an equal opportunity offender, goes on to say this. With the Democrats, though, Christians can basically opt for suicide by giving support to a party that is actively against them, having shown they are very willing to make Christians face trial and lose their jobs for holding the same moral beliefs they've held for thousands of years. The only religious beliefs the Democrats seem to hold dear is that every knee shall bow at the altar of abortion. Okay, we're going there. I'm going to put this out there, and I realize that your toes are being stepped on, but I want you to stick with me over the next few weeks. Justin Gibney, he's from the Ann Campaign, which I would encourage you to check out. It's really an amazing uh, platform and movement that they're doing as Christians. Um, He has a quote, if you can put that up. He said, too many Christians feel misrepresented by the political right and underrepresented by the political left. He said, we just cringe at the thought that those, and and by those he means Christian leaders who blindly support the political right without any critique of it, that those are seen as the voice of non-progressive Christianity. In other words, Christians feel misrepresented by Christian leaders who blindly support the right. But a lot of Christians don't feel represented by the religious left, 
by Christians that are really hard to distinguish from secular progressives. They don't feel like, the, they, don't, they don't push the left on major social issues like abortion, like transgender ideology. They follow the exact course of the left on too many crucial issues. And his point is, um, we have aligned ourselves, wherever you align yourselves, with an allegiance that's really only reserved for King Jesus. We've given our greatest allegiance to our political parties rather than letting Jesus in and to critique our views. This series is really about King Jesus above all. We're not going to wade through all the issues. I mean, we could do the wall. We could do what just happened in Iran. We could do abortion. Uh, we could do voting rights. We could do criminal justice reform. There's so many things that we can talk about. And we're not really here to talk about all the issues. We're here to talk about how we talk about the issues. We're not here necessarily to do politics, but to talk about how we do politics. And to give ourselves a Christian framework, to give ourselves up some broad boundary markers for how we as people who love King Jesus and worship King Jesus and want to be representatives of, of King Jesus, how we should operate this year. Because so often we look just like the culture, like we're at war rather than the king. King Jesus above all, a series about our politics and our citizenship and our allegiances. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to be going through a lot of scriptures. Instead of reading them up front, as I usually do, we will just wait till we go through them, till we get to them to go through them. But pray with me now. Lord Jesus, risen from the dead, the one who has conquered sin and death, the one who will renew and restore all things, we come to you now. We ask that you would give us a renewed vision from your word of what it means to be a people of the kingdom and a people of the king even as we're citizens right here in this country, in a moment where there is a cultural war. Change us. Help us to think more deeply. Help us to love you more fully with the allegiance and loyalty that you deserve. And all God's people said, Amen. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are um, just on the row that you're on with whoever's sitting next to you right now, uh, but whoever uh, you're with, there's also a third person or fourth person, and that person is Jesus. And you're sitting there talking, and you're talking about sports or politics or whatever, and Jesus says to you, hey, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? What would you say? This is actually a story from the Bible. Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi, and he is with his disciples, and he asks them, who do people say that I am? And one of them answers, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Who do people say that I am? Today, we might say what Michael Byrd, who's an Australian theologian, says, uh, that Jesus has become a political mascot. Jesus has become a political mascot in our partisan, polarized system. Bird writes, progressive politics describe Jesus as if he is the love child of Vladimir Lenin and Lady Gaga, who grew up to become an Antifa activist. Jesus is secular, and he's sanitized of anything religious. But Bird goes on to write, from the conservative view, people say that Jesus is like a deified version of Ronald Reagan who believes God helps those who help themselves. Uh, 
He's a Jesus who rejects biological evolution but believes in an economic contest of survival of the fittest. Uh, People believe that Jesus is a political mascot. And maybe we would answer that way if Jesus asked us, but what if he, like he did in this story, said, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And right there in in Matthew, that's the first time that we hear a confession about who Jesus is. And when Peter says that he is, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, what he's saying is that Jesus is both Messiah, he's the promised anointed one who would come to reconcile people to God through atoning for their sins on the cross, but he's also Son of the living God. And what that means is that he's king. He's a Messiah king. Peter would go on to say later that Jesus was both Savior and Lord. He is Lord of all. In fact, many of the first Christians, their first confession about Jesus had to do with him being Lord. Doubting Thomas after he interacts with Jesus and sees that he is in fact resurrected from the grave says, My Lord and my God. And Paul himself would say, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the day, that you will be saved. At the very end of Paul's life, he's in Rome, the capital of the empire. And we catch him in Acts 28, and what he's doing is preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus is not a political mascot. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the king of the universe. And here's the thing for us as Christians. Some people fall on different sides of the political line or say that they are apolitical. But if you're a Christian and you say Jesus is Lord, that in and of itself is a political statement. Jesus is Lord. That confession is a political statement because when it was first said, no one thought Jesus was Lord. They thought Caesar was Lord. Caesar ruled over the Roman Empire. He was the lone ruler. And the confession was Caesar is Lord. He was seen as the divine son. He was seen as divine himself as he ruled. And Caesar called for ultimate allegiance to himself and worship of the empire with him as the Lord of the empire. And so when the apostles and the disciples said, Jesus is Lord, they were saying something political. There's someone on a throne who thinks he is Lord, but there's someone on a throne in heaven who is the Lord. Jesus is Lord. And one of the amazing things about Jesus is he draws people from all political spectrums. I mean, in his group of followers, he had Matthew the text collector and Simon the zealot. Matthew the text collector, who was a Jewish man who accommodated the oppressive Roman government in his homeland. He sided with them in order to take money from his own people to get rich and give to the government. He accommodated an oppressive government. Then there's Simon the Zealot. A zealot was someone who said, 
no way. Whatever means necessary, we are going to get Rome out of Israel, even if it means violence. And here both of them are following Jesus, saying Jesus is Lord. Maybe for us, even as we go through this series, a question for you isn't, is Jesus on your side of the political line, but are you loving in line with the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe you need to ask yourself, do I see Jesus as a simple affirmation of my political views or a challenge to it? We all need those challenges when it comes to our politics, when it comes to our deepest allegiances, and when it comes to what kind of people we identify ourselves as. Because first and foremost, we are King Jesus' people. We are King Jesus' people. We're, We're people of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're citizens, first and foremost, of heaven. That's what Paul writes to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 3. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Now, that that word citizenship there that's capitalized, that comes from the Greek word polytuma, or we could say polis. Uh, Polis has to do with a city, and it's where we get the English word metropolis, polis, and politics. What's Paul getting at? Well, first of all, you need to know a little bit about Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony that was in Greece rather than Italy, and It was full of retired Roman military families. So people would go there to retire from their work in the Roman army. And they enjoyed special privileges. Even though they were outside, in a sense, in Greece, they were still considered citizens of Rome, which gave them special privileges. They were exempt from a poll tax, and they had special protections when it came to court and being accused of something. But as they were in Greece, as citizens of Rome, they would have been thinking, how can we bring Roman culture and Roman ideas and Roman law here to this colony in Greece? How can we make Philippi more like Rome? The challenge was that is is that was all centered on worshiping the emperor. Caesar is Lord. Bring the culture of Caesar and Rome to the rule of Philippi. So what... Is Paul telling them, well, your citizenship is not ultimately in Rome. Your citizenship is ultimately in heaven. And your first priority and your first allegiance isn't to Caesar, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And your agenda is not to bring the culture and legislation of Rome to Philippi, but to bring the culture and values of King Jesus from heaven to earth. To represent him here in this city until he comes back one day. And restores and renews all things, including your broken body that will one day lie in the grave. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word.
is actually what our church is named after, uh, New City. At the end of the Bible, there is a new city that descends from heaven to earth, and the kingdom of God is fully realized so that the glory of the Lord covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. It's not that we're just waiting to go to heaven. We're active representatives of a kingdom that is eventually coming here in its fullness. In Hebrews 13, verse 14, the author writes, For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. We, we seek the heavenly city. We're here as representatives of the kingdom of heaven, but on earth. John Hess Yoder, who was a missionary to Southeast Asia, gives us kind of an example of what this means. Uh, he talked about before colonization in Southeast Asia, there was a discrepancy between the kings of Laos and the kings of Vietnam about how to tax the regions that were on the border of Laos and Vietnam. And what they found in this border region was that the exact locations of people's homes didn't necessarily correlate to what kingdom they were from. There might be someone from Laos who was very close or actually in Vietnam just on the other side of the border, or there might be someone from Vietnam who was over the border and in the Laos, and so they couldn't tax people based on where their home was located. But they began to examine the cultural values that each of these people lived by, and what they found was that the Vietnamese ate long-grain rice, while the Laotians ate short-grain rice. The Vietnamese built their houses on the ground, while the Laotians raised their houses up on stilts. The Vietnamese decorated everything with Chinese-style dragons, and the Laotians decorated everything with Indian-style dragons. And what they began to see was the values that were expressed and embodied by each of these people actually told them where they belong. And it's the same with us. The way we live our lives, the, the things that we decorate our lives with, God's righteousness and justice and love and forgiveness, point, not where we're located now, but where we belong. And one day that kingdom will be fully realized on earth. We live here in this city, but we're part of a heavenly city. And as we're here in this city, we build our lives around King Jesus. We live in this country, but you can tell where we belong based on the values that we live by. We're seeking the city that is to come. And what that means is not that we sit and wait. Some people say, like, the world's falling apart and I'm just waiting for heaven. That's not at all what Paul means. It, he means that we're active right here. Like, we're, we're actively have our eye on heaven and we're reflecting the way things are there here. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But it also means we're realistic because we know that the kingdom has not fully come. That happens when Jesus comes back. So Jesus will help us and he'll say things like, you'll always have the poor among you. So there's always going to be poverty until he returns. And yet he spends a lot of his time healing and restoring the poor. There's a sense where we are representatives of the kingdom, but we realize like things won't be restored and fully fixed until Jesus returns. And what that means is, we are citizens of heaven, but we're also here citizens of the city that we live in, of the state of Florida, of the country of the United States, or wherever you call your home. So how do we do this dual citizenship thing where we sort of have 
one foot here and one foot in another realm that no one can see. Well, one of the most famous passages is, comes from Mark chapter 12. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks. They're trying to sweet talk him a little bit. Nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, it's interesting, these two groups that are mentioned there on the top two lines. Uh, The Pharisees were a nationalistic group in Israel that were resistant to Roman occupation and rule. They had a very narrow view of what Judaism was. The Herodians, on the other hand, were very different. The Herodians... Rather than being nationalistic and having a narrow view of what Judaism was, they were a little bit more open. In fact, they were accommodating, just like Matthew, the tax collector, they were accommodating to Rome. These are two very different political parties, two very different outlooks on life. The Pharisees, though, they didn't like Jesus because he challenged their narrow view of what it meant to follow God. The Herodians didn't like Jesus because he threatened the political arrangement that they had with Rome that benefited them. But they were united in the fact that they both wanted Jesus dead. And so they come together, two very different sides, and set a trap for Jesus. And the trap is this. The the poll tax that the Philippians didn't have to pay, Israel did have to pay. And that tax was one day's wage. Now, we're used to being taxed, but this is an interesting tax because it was a tax imposed by Rome on the country that they were occupying and oppressing in order to fund the occupation and oppression. Give me your money so that I can continue to pay for your oppression. So the Jews, of course, hated the poll tax. They hated it. Every time they paid it, it was a reminder that they were being subjugated by a foreign power. And it's actually a brilliant question by the Pharisees and the Herodians. It's a brilliant question that's going to trap Jesus because if Jesus says, yes, you should pay the poll tax to Rome, his own people will see him as a traitor. But if he says, no, don't pay the poll tax to Rome, the Roman government will see him as a revolutionary. It's a great trap. Because even if he says, I'm not going to answer, everyone that's listening is going to think he's a coward. And so the trap is set. In verse 15 and 16, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius, which was a coin. Bring me a denarius to look at, and they brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this, he asked them. Caesar's, they replied. I think we have a picture of a denarius uh, that we can put up there. This is a 2,000-year-old coin. And there on that coin is the picture of Caesar, who is Lord. In fact, that inscription that's around the coin says this, Tiberius Augustus Caesar, son of the divine. Son of the divine. And that denarius represented each person in Israel's one-day wage for a year. 
So Jesus grabs this coin and looks at it and asks, who is on the coin? And we see the picture. There's Caesar, the emperor, the one who's divine, the one who calls for the allegiance to his empire as ultimate. The Roman Empire is the source of life. No one can challenge the Roman Empire. Everything must serve the emperor. But then Jesus responds with this in verse 17. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God. What's going on here? Well, first of all, we can learn from Jesus' response that he doesn't avoid dicey political issues. Like, he's not silent. That's a really tough question, and he doesn't say nothing. And I think as Christians, even as we talk about things like the attack on Iran and and all the history and everything that's going on there, we don't have to stay silent. We can have heated debates as Christians on these things. If Jesus doesn't avoid political topics, we don't either. But he also doesn't give a response that fits nicely into, like, political categories or cultural categories. He, he says something that doesn't really make anyone happy and doesn't fit into the categories that they give him. And I think for us as Christians, we'll end up there as well. When we talk about sanctity of life from the womb to the tomb, we're not going to foot in either political party when it talks about sanctity of life. But then the other interesting thing when it comes to the government, uh, Jesus in what he answers, says that the government is actually a valid institution, which is interesting to think about. I mean, he is in a country being oppressed by a dictator in an entire empire, and he doesn't say down with Caesar, which is interesting if you think about it. If you read through Paul and Peter's writings, they will both say to pray for the emperor and to honor the emperor because government is a valid institution. But in Jesus' answer, we also see that government is not the ultimate institution. Give to God the things that are God's. Jesus is calling us deeper than just an allegiance that's blind to the government. But first and foremost, as the Philippians were, being called to a heavenly allegiance. Even when, when Jesus says, give to God what is God... What he's saying is Caesar is not God. He's not God. It's another way of saying the coin's wrong, you know. Caesar isn't God and the empire isn't ultimate. And so even though the government's a valid institution, it's not an ultimate institution and it cannot have your ultimate allegiance. But then what's interesting, even as he says the coin, has Caesar's image on it. There's sort of a hiddenness in there that we as people have God's image on us. We're created in the image of God, which is another reason to say that our ultimate allegiance is to him. Everyone who's there hears Jesus' answer, and they were utterly amazed at him. They were utterly amazed at his response, first of all, because they were testing him and they thought that they were sneaky and he sniffs it out right away and he doesn't fall into their trap. But then secondly, they give him two options and he basically says, no, there's another way to do things. And even as he answers, maybe they're thinking, wow, I never 
thought about the idea of being dual citizens, of, of being part of God's kingdom and being a citizen of heaven, but also being a citizen of wherever I live here on earth. So what is this dual citizenship? What does it mean to give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar in our world? Well, I wish that Jesus wrote about every political issue that we are facing. But the truth is he doesn't. You know, saying that Jesus has something to say specifically about gun control, he doesn't say anything about gun control because guns were not invented 2,000 years ago. And so you and I are left to sort through our complex political world. But I think what's clear is this. If our primary allegiance is to a country, is to a political party, or it's to a movement, we will end up squeezing God into the agenda of that country, that party, or that political movement. God is not American. God's not Cuban. God's not South African. God doesn't show up waving flags at Trump rallies nor waving flags at the Democratic National Convention. He's not part of the Tea Party, and he's not a card-carrying member of Black Lives Matter. God's political position is this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And that's going to make us wrestle in a country where we are fighting for political power. But Jesus comes into his lordship not through grabbing for power, but rather through self-sacrifice, through giving love, through dying for his enemies on the cross. What that means for us is that God's commands must be the lens that we see politics, not politics the lens that we see God's commands, because Jesus is Lord. And that's going to affect how we view things like poverty and sexuality. And as we do those things, our, our allegiance must be to the Lord in his kingdom. That's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. In other words, our orientation shouldn't be ultimately around a country or a movement or a political party, but around the kingdom of God coming from heaven to earth. We're not here to separate from society. We're here to subversively infiltrate it with the love of God in the compassion of God, in the justice of God, in the righteousness of God, in the gospel of God. At the same time, we can't have an allegiance to our country. Not for our country's sake, but for Jesus' sake. He put us here. And our job is to serve wherever we are for the sake of the Lord. But as we're here, we must long for more than our country offers we must yearn for more than political parties promise. Our hope is not ultimately in any human or earthly ruler because one day the kingdom of heaven will fully invade earth and Jesus will return and make all things new. That is a political platform I can get behind. God the Father will wipe every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. There will be no mourning or crying or pain. So as we hear that political agenda, I want to ask you again, 
Who are you? Where's your identity? Where's your loyalty? What's your deepest allegiance? Are you a people of King Jesus? Matt Warnock, who was a Christian and a Christian leader, went to the suburbs of Paris briefly after, sometime shortly after 9-11. And in the wake of 9-11, he was there in Paris ministering to North African Muslim children. And as he was there, many of the children realized that he was American and began saying to him, Bin Laden is my father. In other words, down with America. In fact, a 25-year-old said to him, Vive Saddam Hussein, which I believe means live on Saddam Hussein. I don't speak French. But he said the, the toughest moment was when a small boy mimicked an airplane flying into a building in order to mock him. And in the midst of that, he had to ask himself, who am I? I'm an American. I'm angry. But if I stand up for that right now, I will lose an opportunity to represent Christ to people who are siding with my enemies. He would say, ultimately, he was here on the other side of the earth because Jesus is the Lord of all the earth, and he has commanded us to be his representatives. And sometimes that means letting our country be insulted right in front of us so that we can show the love of Christ to those people who are insulting us. And ultimately, Warnock said, I chose my allegiance to Jesus. And we were able to leave 24,000 French Arabic New Testament in, the, in that community. And several new people came to know Jesus. He said it was worth him sifting through what his deepest allegiance was. Who is Jesus? Jesus is Lord. Who are you? You are people of the king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we love you. And we ask that you would give us an understanding of who you are and what your kingdom is about in order that we might better represent you, in order that we might more deeply love you, in order that we might understand what it means to live as a citizen of heaven. Father, we confess we all in this room do not agree politically, but help us to stay united in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we sift through challenging things over the next four weeks and over the next year, may we never forget who we are. We are people of the King. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.